Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you're transformed by the Word of God in the following message, and we trust that you're using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in the life of a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. George Wishart is probably a name that you do not know. He was a 16th century bishop in Great Britain, and he was somewhat known as a rascal. He struggled with immorality and drunkenness, and for whatever reason, uh, he was set to be executed, to be burned at the stake in Edinburgh, Scotland. As it would be, most anybody who was on death row at that time uh, would put in pleas for some kind of pardon, And as was typical in executions of the time, a psalm was read at your execution. Now, I would like a psalm to be read, you know, at my funeral, but I didn't think about that for your execution. So it was the choice of whoever was being, well, whoever was on trial, that they could choose the psalm of their choice. And so George Wishart, this rascal bishop, chose Psalm 119 to be read at his execution. Well, that was actually pretty strategic because while while that was being read, before he was burned at the stake, it's a long chapter, by the way, a pardon came through and was made, made its way down to the execution site where before the reading of the long Psalm 119 was finished, George Wishart got his pardon to be executed. Now, it sounds kind of cool, right, that you choose a Bible passage that is read long enough to escape an execution. As, am- as amusing as that could be, uh, that is actually our text today. We are in the book of Psalms, um, Psalm 119. And as I joked around to some people this week, today we're starting a 22-year series in the book of Psalms, Uh, 119, uh, because there's 22 parts to uh, Psalm 119, very strategically marked, and we're going to take one a year, although we may uh, go faster than 22 years. But we're thinking that here in the month of January, we would just refresh and reconsider the importance of God's Word to us. So if you have a Bible, please join me there in Psalm 119, and today we're going to be looking at the first part of the psalm. This this psalm is very similar to some of the other psalms in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms opens with this saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. It's a psalm of blessing. So it's very similar to psalms like Psalm 1 and Psalm 19. We don't know who the author of the psalm is. There are various authors of psalms, but this author we do not know. It doesn't come with any hints Se. So that's a mystery. And the time of when it was written, we don't know, because the Psalms were a compilation of songs in, the, in Israel's history. So my guess is that this was probably compiled or written sometime after the Babylonian captivity when Israel was in exile in Babylon. It was perhaps meant to teach the people of God how to reflect on the word of God without the presence of a temple. So, 
It's also like Psalm 19. Don't get wrong, Psalm 19. You know, the psalm that says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies show his handiwork. In that it uses a variety of words to describe the Bible, the word of God. So Psalm 119 is like that, and we're going to see that here today. This psalm, Psalm 119, is a gem among the psalms. And as most poetry from the Hebrew Bible, it's kind of hard to pin down the structure of any of the psalms, uh, but there are some tips. In fact, if you are looking, if you're a structure kind of person and trying to look for what's the structure in this psalm, well, the whole psalm is broken down into 22 parts. And we're going to look at the first part. And if you have a Bible, you might notice that there's either like a little Hebrew letter there or a transliteration that says Aleph. Aleph is A in Hebrew. It is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet of the Bible. And so this is what we call an acrostic poem, an acrostic psalm. Now, we can't see this in our English Bible, but every first word of this psalm, verses 1 through 8, begins with the letter A, or Aleph. And hence, that's why it's there. It was perhaps uh, used and composed so that people could memorize it. So when you don't have a temple, when you don't really have a priesthood, you have a composition like this that is meant to aid your memorization of the Word of God. One famous Puritan by the name of Matthew Henry called this a chest of golden rings, not necessarily a chest of gold links. So you think of a treasure chest and all these different gems and, and rings inside. They're not necessarily linked together, but they're beautiful and rich nonetheless. It is the A to Z about the Bible. This is the Bible's testimony about itself. As Charles Spurgeon said, this is the alphabet of divine love. I will not reflect more and extol all the excellencies of Psalm 119. Let us read together Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. I will read as you follow along. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And though, Lord, every week the word is preached from this pulpit at this church and many churches around our great city, Lord, we often uh, confess, Lord, that we are often bored with it. Lord, our attention spans are, are negligent and struggle. And so, Lord, I pray that as this word is preached today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give light to us light to our path, illuminate us to understand 
your word and not just understand it, but to cherish it and to love it even more as a church. Exalt Christ through this. And I pray, Lord, for any person here who may not know Jesus as their Savior, as the word of life, that today would be the day of their salvation. Have mercy, O God, and give us light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What would you sacrifice to be happy? What would you give up to be smarter? What would you do to be accepted? What would you do to be blessed? That word blessing has been downloaded into the, our culture's vocabulary as a kind of a t-shirt type of meme. No shade against those who use that in your communication, but we kind of know what blessing feels like. It's a good feeling. It seems like life is going well for us, that there's these strings of good providences that seem to line up on the way for us. We are blessed. But if we want to keep that blessing going, how do we go about it? What must we do to be happy For the language of the psalm here, as it is at the beginning of the book of Psalms, when the psalm says, blessed are those, it really means happy. Or how fortunate are those whose way is blameless? How happy are those who keep his testimonies? Thomas Manton, one of the other great Puritan divines, indicts us all when he says, we want happiness without the yoke of religion. In other words, we want to be happy without a price to pay. Here's another way of putting it in question form. Do you want the comforts of heaven without the hardness of commitment? Do you want heaven without the path that it takes to get there? Do not hear when I say that, that I'm advocating for some kind of works righteousness where we have to do, 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 and and be, be, be something in order to get to heaven. That's not what I'm suggesting. But Jesus himself said that narrow is the way of righteousness. Narrow is the path that leads to the kingdom. So today, I think our psalm teaches us that as God's word shapes our ways, we get the blessing. As God's word shapes our ways, we get the blessing. Notice with me in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist dictates to us the pathway of blessing. So there is a little bit of structure here. But enjoy this more as a meditation on the word of God. As Psalm 1 started, so this psalm starts. It is a general statement. It's a global desire for everyone. This is for man, woman, and child. This is for everybody. Blessed is that person whose way is blameless. And this is the only place in the psalm, verses 1 through 3, it's the only place in this psalm that is spoken in the third person. After verse 3, it is spoken in second person as to God. It's a, it's a very good prayer. The pathway of blessing. He said, blessed are those whose way is blameless. Let's not take words for granted. It's only eight verses. So let's dig a little bit on these words. Way is what? Well, that has various dictionary definitions, but I think the sense of it here is the path 
between an origin and a destination, between A and B. But I think the way the psalm uses it, the psalmist uses it here, is that our way is a collection of choices. So it talks about way and ways. Our way, as we look back on it and look ahead to it, is nothing more, nothing less, than a collection of our choices. God's way is not necessarily his choices, but his method of doing things. The way is blessed for that person who is blameless. It is a collection of choices that mounts up to a certain kind of integrity. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, it says. And what is it? Well, how does it follow up? Who walk in the law of the Lord. The word walk here is used three times, at least in this portion. It is an activity. It's motion. But here he uses that word for the word of God that that permeates through the whole psalm about 26 times. It's the most used word for the word, and it's law. It is the word that you've probably heard, Torah. It is that life-giving instruction from God for his people's flourishing. Now, when you think of law, you probably think of something that is limiting, right? Something that is restrictive, something that is meant to keep you in line, and some, if you get out of line, whack, you're whacked back into shape. Well, indeed, God's word has that sense. But law is more than that. Law is the benevolent instruction that is meant to give life to a people. And so happy is the person who walks and sets their way in the law of the Lord, the Lord being Yahweh, the one who gives his word, the one who speaks his word, and it happens. And then it says, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Now, there are about five or six different words right here in these eight verses that are synonymous with the Bible or the word of God. This word particularly here, testimonies, its shade of meaning has to do with being a witness. In other parts of Scripture, it talks about God being a witness against his erring people. But as one uh, one theologian says that the word testimonies or witness, when it comes to the written word of God, speaks to the word's outspokenness and its dependability. You've heard the term whistleblower, right? Well, a whistleblower, as you, if you watch sports, you always have a referee or an umpire, somebody who is there to kind of control the game and enforce the rules. And when something needs to stop or be corrected, they blow the whistle. In society, whistleblowers are people who expose others for not doing what is right. And in a sense, the testimonies of God are that way. They are that outspoken witness of the God of the universe, the one who speaks to bring us back on our way. And it is also something that is dependable. There are lots of testimonies given, testimonials for products, testimony in a court of law. But when it comes to the testimony of God, it is something that is utterly dependable. It is, can we say it this way? It is infallible. It cannot fail. And it is proven true, which is what the book of Proverbs says when it says, every, 
Every word of God proves true. So it talks about here, blessed are those whose way is blameless. Oh, what does that mean? Isn't that a kind of an intimidating phrase? When you think of like, what does it mean to be blameless? Is this, I mean, the, I mean, the word has its root in, in the term for perfection in, in Hebrew. But here, the blamelessness, it refers to integrity. Now, we all know, I think we know, right? When you say integrity, you have a, a picture that comes to mind. Maybe when you hear integrity, you think of a person. You think of an exemplary person, a person who is not necessarily above the law, but one who, because they stay within the law, is a model. If I can define it this way, I would say that integrity is the outworking of the inward life. It is the outworking of an inward life. Somebody who looks good and acts good isn't necessarily a person of integrity. Eventually, that could be exposed. You can look look the part, you can act the part, and not be a person of integrity, and not be upright. Another way of saying this is that this is the unity of behavior and attitude. It is the attitude fleshed out. Blessed are those whose way is integral, is a unity of attitude of mind and behavior. This is blamelessness. This is perfection, according to the Old Testament. So this is the blessed life. You want to know what the right path to happiness is? It is, a, it is the kind of life that aligns itself to the Word of God. And it says here, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with his whole heart, who walk. All these words, these action words piled together tell us that there's an attention that we must pay to God's word. Integrity and attention. This attention talks about a fixation, a prioritization, a kind of diligence. You know, that person who is always showing up at the at the same time, every day, at the gym. And you wonder, wow, they've been doing this for years. They pay attention. They keep. They seek. They are driven. This is not a passive activity to seek God, to seek his word. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Now, you may think, oh, that's, that's great. This is good flowery Bible language. Of course, Christians keep the Bible. They pay attention to the Bible. But if you want the blessing. You must align your whole life with the word of God. This does not put somebody's, um, uh, put a certain vocation on this. This is not just the preacher's life or the scholar's life or a monk. This is all of those. All of you are blessed if you pay attention, active attention, and you fixate on the word of God who seek him with their whole hearts. All right, there are, no, there are no lost words in the Bible. Every word means something. Who seek him with their whole heart, which means you could, you could seek God with part of your heart, some of your affection. And the psalmist here is saying and is calling all of us to the kind of life, to the kind of blessing that is gotten as a result of giving oneself wholly 
to the word of God. Well, you wonder, you got those two statements of blessing, and then verse 3, on this pathway of blessing, says, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. What's going on here? I mean, blameless, who also do no wrong? Does that mean, I mean, I can never sin? I'm not supposed to sin? So we have integrity, we have attention, and here we have avoidance. In other words, Blessed are those who don't trade in sin. That is not your normal activity. I like what Matthew Henry says. He says that this idea of doing no wrong is being conscious of what clogs us in the ways of God, but not so much that it takes us off the path of God. So this is not sinless perfection. This is not saying, can I sin less tomorrow than I did today, and keep your tally chart that way? Not necessarily, but are you mindful? Are you being mindful of what distracts you, of what, as Hebrews 12 says, what is the sin that so easily besets you? What are you prone to, sin-wise, that if you left yourself unchecked long enough, you would no longer be on the path of God and his ways. And so the blessed life does include and incorporate a certain measure of avoidance, of consciously avoiding sin and not committing iniquity. That's why when we often pray, you hear some pray, Lord, forgive us for our sins that we have committed consciously or unconsciously. Here, I mean, the the focus can be on conscious sinning. We sin all the time. But my guess is each of you sins quite consciously every day. And there's a blessing. God isn't here slapping you on the hand. He is encouraging you to the kind of life that is a blessed life that consciously avoids sin. Oh, what a convicting thing this is for me. I need this just as much as you need this. This doesn't change in the New Testament, by the way. John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 3 says this. This is the New Testament version. He says that no one who is born of God, makes a practice of sinning. Why? How in the world is that? Who answers that? He says, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, translation, 1 John 3, 9, says, people who have been born of God don't make a practice of sinning. Do not continue in a lifestyle of unabated, unchecked sin. You know, for the Christian, there's a... You, when you were born of God, you know what started to happen? You started to feel and always have a problem with sin. You, chances are, if you've been converted and baptized into the church, you have now become more aware of the struggle of living a right life is. And you know what? That was by design. Those who are born of God struggle with sin. They just are not taken in the tide of it. They, you resist it. Sometimes you fall. Sometimes you are swept away for a little time. But no one makes a consistent practice of sinning. No, no, not somebody who is God's child. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. The people who honor the word of God 
are those who do not make a practice of sinning, but instead they walk in his ways. Another way of saying this simply, friends, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is that God's word is meant to keep us from sin. Just a few verses later in the next section of the psalm, he talks about that. Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. God's word, stored up, treasured, valued, paid attention to, will keep you from sinning. And I probably know what the answer is to this question I'm about to ask. I mean, don't we all want that? Do you want to sin? Could you stop sinning if you could? And the sincerest of Christians would say, yes, of course, sign me up. And when God birthed you, my friend, into Christ, you did get signed up for this. You have been brought into a pathway of blessing that is not without some kind of war and struggle. So I'll sum it up this way. This is not necessarily a, the, the psalm in a sentence, but um, I, I think it, it's, it, it goes to say that integrity on the path of life comes through wholehearted attention to God's word. Integrity on the path of life comes through wholehearted attention to God's word. And that means something. That's for everybody. No matter your vocation, no matter your age or your stage in life, if you want to be a whole person, if you want to be a person of integrity, if you want to live uprightly, you will pay attention with your whole heart to God's word. Oh, granted, this doesn't mean that you go about memorizing the whole Bible. I mean, dedicated Muslim boys have the Quran memorized by the time they're the age of 12. So this is not necessarily speaking of rote memorization, but it is speaking of warm application, of consistent giving oneself to. And if you want to be a person of integrity, according to God, you will give yourself wholly H-W-O-L-L-Y, to his H-O-L-Y word. As God's word shapes our ways, we get the blessing. We experience happiness unlike anything before. You want to be happy? Pay attention to God's word. Now, I assume most of you agree about all this. And it's good to know the truth or the truth of God's words, and it's good to know what this pathway of blessing is, but can you download it? In other words, does this get personal? You thought, I, thought, I thought we just preached the last 10 minutes, Will, it sounded really personal. Oh no, this song gets even more personal. And so we see in verses four through eight, the pathway of blessing leads to personal begging. Personal begging in verses four through eight. He says, you have commanded, now he's talking to God, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. So the psalmist, whoever is writing this, is, is saying, is recognizing that there is a lawgiver, a precept giver, and he's commanded that these precepts be kept diligently. Now, for the Old Testament people, there was the law, 
which consisted of 613 different laws and different kinds of categories of, of, of life and society. So the word, the word precepts here speaks to uh, details. Even though this is synonymous, in a sense, with law and testimonies, it's another word for the word of God, but its shade of difference is it speaks to the details of God's word. So it could speak to those 613 laws. Those aren't just throwaway laws. Okay, sure, this side of the cross, this side of the ascended Christ, we may not boil a goat in her mother's milk, okay? But that was a, a detail a precept of the law that Old Testament Israel had to pay attention to, amongst many others. I'd like to put it this way. I'm going to give you some things just to to write down or to take away, take home. Verse 4 teaches us to recognize that God's word, capital W, word, is made up of God's words. God's word is made up of God's words. And the idea of precepts here is the details. Everyone can fill in the blank that the devil is in the details. Oh, but don't let that be the cliche and mantra of your life. God is in the details before the devil was ever in the details. The devil was a creation of God. God is in the details and he will always be in the details. And God has detailed out in his word how his creation ought to live. How the church is supposed to function. Verse 4, another way of reading this, if I were to like to translate this, and this is good for you to hear, is because, because verse 4, it says, you have commanded, and, you know, that's sensible English. But as it's written, as the original hearer heard this, this is what they heard. It's, they would have heard, you, you commanded your precepts to keep very much. So the idea of diligently in verse 4 is the same idea of utterly in verse 8. You commanded, you, God, commanded your precepts. So it's recognizing that the word of God is made up of all these other words, and they are important to pay attention to. You know, for everyone living in ancient Israel at the time, that would have taken a lifetime. If you got to age 12 to your bat mitzvah, your bar mitzvah, I mean, that was a starting place of your familiarity with God's word. The rest of your life was to be given to walking on this pathway of blessing. And it starts by recognizing God's word is made up of God's words. Then in verses 5 or 6, I think he teaches you, he wants you to beg God for consistency. I love this. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. This oh that is an exclamation. It is, you can't, you can't classify it as a, is it a subject, is it a verb? How does it, no, no, you know what this is? This is an outburst. Oh, that. It's exclamation type of language. It is an outburst of prayer. Oh, that my ways. Remember that collection of choices that you make in life? Oh, that those ways may be steadfast. In other words, may they be established. May they be confirmed. 
You know what the psalmist is saying here? He is praying, in a sense, for a, a consistency. He is outbursting to God. God, I'm not consistent. Make me more consistent. Make my life align more with your way. You have commanded the oh that my ways in keeping your statutes. Again, a synonym for God's word. But you know what? The interesting shade of meaning for the word statutes here has to do with that of something that is actually engraven. Have you ever seen, or probably more in the movies, because I don't know if any of you have done this, you walk by a tree, and there's some lovers' names carved in that tree, you know, Micah and Julia forever, right? And they come back when they're 80 years old, and there's that tree with Micah and Julia forever carved into that tree. And that's the idea here. It's the idea of the word of God being an engraving, something that is embossed upon your heart, something that doesn't necessarily disappear. And the psalmist is just craving this out loud. This is an outburst. Oh, God, that, that, that your ways, that I might keep your ways and keep them before me like an engraving that ne- never disappears. And then he says in verse 6, then if, my, if I was more consistent, He's kind of wishing out loud, if I were more consistent, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. And you see this idea of shame and dishonor all throughout the psalm. So let's get used to that language right here, right now. Old Testament scholar John Goldingay speaks of this shame here and puts it in its context that it is a devastating consequence of those who refuse to walk in Yahweh's ways. It is losing one's honor before the community. So friends, as we are so good at, and as Westerners and as Americans, as we are good at feeling shame and, you know, and, and, and in a sense, uh, putting ourselves out there and you shouldn't be ashamed of this, but I think there is something to be said for reclaiming the idea of biblical shame. And here, What he's talking about, he's recognizing that there is a consequence for not paying attention to God's word. You run the risk of being put to open shame, a kind of dishonor, not just in your, to yourself, not not, not just to your family and your household, but potentially to to the whole community. So you see that there's like this corporate aspect that if your life is not, trending on the path of God's word. You run the risk of not just putting yourself to shame, but even the whole community of God to shame. And he is praying against that. If I were more steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I would not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Friends, a blessed life is one that repels shame, meaning that blessing isn't just about material wealth, or good health, but it's about reputation. And you want to know how to manage your reputation? Reputation management is a thing these days. Pay attention to God's word. It will not only help you and and center you, 
But in your paying attention and living diligently on the path of God's word, it will also help the community, the whole church, the congregation, the testimony of the whole. uses the word commandments here, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Again, this synonym emphasizes not just the content of commands, do this, do this, don't do this, da, da, da. No, but it also recognizes the authority behind the commandments. Do you long for God to close those gaps of immaturity in your life? Think about your own self. Do you, how often do you express to God, God, I, I, I wish, I wish I was just more in tune with your word. I wish your word just permeated me more. And I wish that I wouldn't be like a, a toddler. You know, a toddler has a big head and his body's trying to keep up with them and they, they run. God, I, I want... I want my body to grow up into my head. I want balance. I want to grow up. I want to be mature. And verse 5, friends, verse 5 is something that you can take home today. You can memorize it, you can say it, and you can make it part of your prayer life right away. And I think, I think if you're sincere and if you're committed to following God and his word, not everything's going to repair overnight. I do think God will answer the prayer, though. Would you be brave and daring enough to ask God to close the gaps of spiritual immaturity in you? If you don't focus your life on God's word, you will inevitably experience some short sort of shame or dishonor in the congregation. He talks about having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Fixation can be a good thing or it could be a harmful thing. So what do you let into your eyes and ears? Because those senses are the primary ways that we gather information that influence us and affect us. What do you let into your senses? Do, do you so tax your senses day in and day out, that it leaves no energy and very little attention for God's word. Let me say that again. Do you tax your senses throughout the day and day after day and week after week that at the end of the day and at the end of days, you look back and you scratch your head and you find yourself saying, I had very little energy or attention for, for God's word. And I'm not trying to say this as a, as a guilt trip, friends. This is not me against you. This is a fellow struggler admitting and confessing to these same things. But let's not just sit here and wallow in our unrighteousness, in our shortened attention spans. Let's do something about it, which the next part of personal begging is in verses 7 to 8. He says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. So part of the personal begging is recognize that God's word is made up of God's words. 
begged God for consistency. And here in verses seven to eight, simply it is resolve to obey God's word. Resolve to obey God's word. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. The rules here speak of the judgments of God. They speak of God as a benevolent judge who deals justly in the affairs of humans. Sometimes we think that God is up there and that if he is this God, he gives us this word, this 3,000-year-old book, and we're here as modern supposed to somehow shore up to it. That, that God doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't seem to understand us, but he does. The rules that God gives us are his judgments because God gets his creation. As we say often, God knows you better than you know yourself. And he has given you this alphabet of love to help center your heart and your affections on him. So I think in these couple verses, one thing I would put out there is that sincere praise accompanies the Christian who learns God's words and keeps them. He says, I will praise you with an upright heart. So sincere praise accompanies the heart. How? When I learn your righteous rules. It's not merely when you're reading your Bible and you discover something that you've never seen before and you're excited about it. Praise God. Seriously, praise God. But as those moments add up, when you have the the big aha moments and then the little ones throughout the days and the years, accumulate up to a life of praise. So sincere praise accompanies the Christian who learns God's words, but doesn't stop there, and keeps them. Verse 8, I will keep your statutes. There's that word again, statutes. I see those engravings that you have written of old and are good for me today as they were for Israel yesterday. I will keep your statutes. And then he says, do not utterly forsake me. (laughs) That's kind of jarring. Friends, this is the language of prayer. God understands what it's like to be you. He sent his son Jesus to come in your flesh. Jesus understands that he gets what it's like to be you, male, female. He gets you. And based on that person, who himself was the word of God, the word made flesh, we can have the language to say, do not utterly forsake me. Here is a plea for God not to forsake us. Why? Because of our proneness to wander. Even after all these great statements about the, about the Bible, right? Most of, it, most of us would agree with most of these, like, yeah, I should be that way, right? The psalmist ends with like, I am, I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Even with all the good intentions and well-crafted plans for a new year and upped Bible reading time and more time in church or serving this and doing that, we must understand that we can still leave the path. And this is not the language necessarily, of somebody who makes resolutions and is done after a month. This is somebody who realizes that, man, I've already started off the new year, kind of failed, and I am prone to wander, but I'm going to stay on the path. And I'm going to trust God and his word to keep me on that path. See, we can still be self 
deceived. And this is another way of saying, here's a prayer that you can take home today. God, please don't give up on me. Do not utterly forsake me. This sort of sounds like the language of Psalm 51, when David, King David, was about at his worst. Committed adultery, he lied, he murdered. And then his great psalm of confession has this line in it where he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Did did David really think that God would take his Holy Spirit away from him? I know, but if, if you've been on a crash course of sinning and gotten off the path, you very, very well may think that God could leave you. And so he is begging the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is begging and saying, please don't give up on me. I, I will keep your statutes Do you think that whoever wrote this psalm and whoever has prayed this psalm lived a perfect week of keeping God's word after this? No. This doesn't give us an excuse for some kind of mediocrity as Christians. Kind of saying, I'll do my best and God will clean up the rest. David as well as this psalmist, when they say, do not utterly forsake me, proclaims their need of the Holy Spirit in living out the scripture. Friends, you can know your Bible backwards and forwards. You can read it every year. You can read it twice a year. I don't care. You can memorize great portions of it. But if it hasn't downloaded into your life and become become who you are, without the Holy Spirit, you fail. You will wander. You will deconstruct. You will not finish. We need the Holy Spirit to live out Scripture. You know why? He's the one who wrote it. He's the one who breathed it out, so we need him. We need the author. He knows best how to interpret the word for our living. The word of God is not this top-shelf theological thing that only great thinkers and brilliant minds can can somehow penetrate and and make look impressive. No, the the word of God is, is for you. It's for everyday people. Blessed is the person. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Let that settle in. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the very author of the book. Now, this doesn't mean that you can become your own kind of rogue interpreter and you don't interact with other people who interpret the word of God in a community. No. But you have the Holy Spirit. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And the way you can flip that positively is you can pray, God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Oh, wow, you know what? That actually comes in Psalm 119 a little later. As I read your word today, God, open my eyes. God, I'm kind of dumb. I'm not saying you all. I'm, I can't see things open. I need your spirit to interpret your word for me. And this is the thing, folks. You need both the word of God and the spirit of God to live for God. I don't think it could be put better than 
how Sinclair Ferguson, who is an old preacher now who lives in Scotland, has influenced many, and he's influenced me, and he says this. I love this. If we emphasize the word without the spirit, then we will dry up. If we emphasize the spirit without the word, we will blow up. But if we emphasize the spirit and the word, we will grow up. And isn't that what you want? Do you want to shrivel? Well, then become, a, then become an expert in the Bible and have lots of arguments on YouTube and social media about this and that interpretation and neglect the church. You will dry up. Or do you want to blow up? It's all about the spirit. The word, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you'll blow up then. You need both. Friends, our Lord Jesus, after he was baptized, he, went, he was led out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days. And the devil tempted him. And every time Jesus intercepted the devil's attacks, the devil's temptations, not with a philosophical you know, debate, he said, Jesus, the Son of God, said, it is written. Three times. And that first time he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is the word of God, dear friend, as important to you as food? If you neglect to eat, your health goes south. If you starve yourself, you will die. Jesus is saying, every, you cannot live, but bread alone is not good enough. For your life. Why? And Jesus recognized something that it's not just about your body, it is about your spirit. And your spirit, your soul, it needs something more than food to live and live healthily forever. If our Lord Jesus needed the word of God in the wilderness, how much more do we? If Jesus needed the word, and centered his whole life on the word. How much more do we need to do that? So I ask you, how important, how important is the Bible to you? You say, I have a lot of copies in my house and three on my phone. Good. Is God's word essential or is it an accessory? Is God's word fully employed in your life, or is it a part-time employee? Is God's word the pathway of blessing in your life, or is it more for you a pathway to financial profitability? Is God's word just a soundbite for you, or is it the soundtrack of your life? What? Would 22, what would 2023 or the next couple of months, let's not even worry about the rest of the year, what would the next couple of months be like for you if you changed your habit to reflect verse four? You have commanded that your precepts be kept diligently. What if everything about your, your job, your, your children, your relationships, everything was shaped around how can I live every facet of my life to diligently Keep God's word. 
I think your life would change. And what would you do? And what do you think God would do if you dared to pray verse 5? This is why I want to put another plug in for this book, Praying the Bible. This is not God's word. This is the helpful musings and meditations of another broken sinner who has helpfully been praying the word of God, and it's changed his life. And so we invite you to that Wednesday night where we will discuss that book. So even if you don't finish it, read it, get it, practice it, go through it slowly. I challenge you to make the word more of a priority to get into it, to be diligent here in January, here in the week of January 8th through the 14th. How does that sound as a starter? January 8th through the 14th, could you resolve to obey God and his word? So you get the blessing of God as his word shapes your ways. Do you want his blessing? Would you dare to grow by, in pleasure by obeying God no matter what comes your way? There's a blessing waiting for you. True happiness on the path of God's word. Get on it. Stay on it. Obsess over it. And it will be worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is more powerful than our excuses. It is better and able to change our attention spans, conform our affections. Lord, I pray that this psalm, that this would, this would, this would be a, a stone in our shoes all week, and that your Holy Spirit would, would with your word, Change us from one glory to another. In Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word. And for more information about joining us for a worship service or taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.